If you're like me, you've probably gone through times of suffering and difficulty. And in those times of suffering and difficulty, you know how tough it can be. Especially if the suffering seems to come in a cyclical form, right? You think about all the things that are going wrong in your situation, the circumstances, things that have happened to you, your own responses, and you just can never seem to get out of looking at yourself. Perhaps one of the, mo one of the most helpful things to do when you are in that kind of suffering, and then the despair and the discouragement, the depression that often accompanies it, is to look outside of yourself. It's to look outside of yourself. Looking inward and at the circumstance, once again, can just send us on this sort of at least so it feels, this inward spiral downward into discouragement, perhaps catastrophizing, thinking that even though this happened at this one point in your life, the rest of your life is just going to forever look like that. But looking outward to what could be, looking outward to other people that you can serve, looking outward to the genuine contributions that you can make to humanity and your friends and the church loving others in Jesus and looking outward to ultimate hope, it can actually help yourself look up and out. It can get your soul to actually look outward. This morning's passage actually helps us do just that. It can help us look away from ourselves if we are struggling with this certain suffering and the difficulty that comes with it, and it helps us look outward to true hope that is Jesus Christ and His plan to build the church. Join with me in turning to 2 Timothy, and we are in chapter 2 as we walk through the book of 2 Timothy, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 to 13 this morning. As we, as we have been going through the letter of 2 Timothy, we noted that Paul the Apostle is writing what would be his last letter. And here in this sort of last will and testament to Timothy, he calls young Timothy, this young pastor, his son in the faith, to stand fast in the gospel, fulfill his ministry for Jesus Christ. If you look there in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul calls him to share in the suffering. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. If you've been joining us, joining us over the last few weeks, you know that there was great reason for why he had to call him to continue to share in the suffering. Paul was being persecuted for the faith as were many Christians during that time. Again, he was writing a couple years before his own execution under Emperor Nero, which happened there in 67, maybe 68 AD. And it was many Christians, not just Paul, but many Christians who were suffering for the faith, torn apart by wild beasts, burned alive even. You can imagine that this would have had certainly a winnowing effect on the church as some, we know from the letter, some were turning away, ashamed of the gospel, maybe for fear of persecution. Paul mentions, again, some people here in this letter who had turned away. So Paul encourages Timothy, on the other hand, to stand fast, being strengthened by Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and being fully committed to Jesus Christ. So with Christ as his focus... He would persevere. Without Christ as his focus, he would have given up. So really to conclude what he has written thus far, from 1-1 all the way to our passage today, to conclude all of that, he says there, look at 2-8, he says there, 
remember Jesus Christ. That is, retain in your memory and in your thoughts, don't let Christ be far from you, retain in your memory Jesus Christ. We, just like Timothy, are called to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. We need to keep Christ as our focus and to retain Him in our memories. And this is what will encourage us to persevere. Look there at 2.1. I'll go ahead and read from 2.1. Paul writes there, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Well, an effort for us to remember Jesus Christ, from our passage, we see four truths about Jesus Christ, four truths about Christ that will embolden our zeal for him. Four truths about Christ that embolden our zeal for him, especially in the face of suffering. The first truth here is that Christ reigns over all. Christ reigns over all. This is the first thing there that Paul fixes our attention on. He says there, remember Jesus Christ. Then what does he say? Risen from the dead, the offspring of David. These are truths that ultimately encourage the Christian to remember that Jesus Christ reigns specifically in two different ways. Specifically in two different ways. First, he reigns over death. He reigns over death. Now, of course, when he says there, Jesus Christ risen from the dead, he's talking about the resurrection. The Bible is ultra clear about the fact that Christ got up from the dead. And we see this plainly. If you were to read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they record him being crucified on the cross as a wrath-bearing substitute. They, they show him being laid into the grave. And then on the third day, it records him rising from the dead. Now, if you are visiting with us, just know that here the, the resurrection is crucial to the good news of Jesus Christ. Like, why is it good news? The resurrection is part of that. Just think of, just think of uh, you know, the whole salvation plan given in Jesus, right? Think about the incarnation. Is the incarnation good news? Christmas is coming up. You know, people are usually thinking about uh, um, the incarnation. Well, certainly the incarnation is part of the good news. We had rebelled against God. All mankind had rebelled against our one and only maker. Earned for ourselves just condemnation, even in hell, the Bible says. But God, in his great love for us, sends his eternal son, Jesus, to take on flesh, right? Incarnation, why is that? Well, it's the mission to save. That's really good news. God, in his great love, sends his eternal son to take on flesh for flesh. Praise the Lord for that. 
Is his righteous life part of the good news? Jesus' righteous life? Absolutely. We have the incarnation. We have his righteous life where people should have lived underneath God's law. But, of course, we failed. Right? That's, that's all problem. That's all bad news. Well, Jesus takes on flesh, and he lives the righteous life that we should have. He fulfills the righteous demands of God's law on behalf of his people. That's good news. Think about his crucifixion. He lives his righteous life so that he might be the perfect sacrifice for sin. That he might die for sinners who turn from their sin and believe upon him. The wrath that we deserved and the death that we deserved, he bore for us if you are a Christian. Crucifixion, right? That too is good news. He bears the wrath that his people deserved so that we wouldn't have to. He was laid in the grave, okay? And then we come to the resurrection. Three days later, after he was crucified, he gets up from the dead. And in that, there too is good news. He shows all, right? That all who turn from their sins and believe on him will be free. That that death penalty for sinning against God is no longer hanging over us because Christ himself embraced it. And in rising from the dead, he shows all that payment has been made for all of Christ's people, for all who turn from their sins and believe upon Christ. That is good news. And friends, if you're visiting with us, you're exploring Christianity, friends, that is good news. You can know this Jesus if you too turn from your sin and believe upon him. Now, if this is all new to you, if this is new to you, I want you to know that we here at First Baptist Church, if this isn't clear already, we actually believe that Jesus got up from the dead. And of course, it's not only us who believe this. In fact, as David mentioned earlier, when we read the Nicene Creed from 381 AD, as the 4th century AD, we, together with the church of all ages, have believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's recorded right here in the Word, the Scriptures. And it is, in fact, reliable. <clears throat> it is a trustworthy document, which is an incredible book, written by 30-plus, 30 35-plus authors over time, written over a period of 1,200 years plus, which certainly deals with all of time, and all of the books in Scripture even though they're written over this period of over a thousand years, even though it was written by all of these different authors, it's written to explain the one plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's incredible. I recognize that, you know, maybe to some of you newcomers, you might be thinking like, dude, Christ makes some crazy claims. You guys are talking crazy right now, talking about the resurrection. Well, friends, I'm really glad you're here exploring. And you are welcome to come to explore. Even skeptics, I encourage the exploration. The claims, these claims of Jesus Christ and your questions about it, about Jesus Christ, like, well, did he really get up from the grave? Did he even exist? Right? Those things ought to be explored. Your questions of things like, you know, how did the Bible come to actually be the Bible? Is it reliable? Can I trust the Bible? Right? Those are all excellent questions. And friends, if you want answers, you feel free and talk to me. Feel free to talk to the friend who brought you point you to various resources that answer these types of questions, right? Faith is never blind, as some people like to, like to describe. I mean, I think I know what they're getting at. You know, you just have to believe in Jesus. Um, but it's not blind in the sense that it's not based on any evidence like real facts, right? Did Jesus actually live? Well, Christians actually believe that. Is this book reliable? Well, actually it is. 
It is, in fact, the most reliable book of ancient history. But people just don't know because they don't explore. So let me encourage you to explore these things. And while you explore these things, let me encourage you to read the claims of Christ for yourself. Read and explore the claims of Christ for, your sake, for yourself, right? For intellectual integrity. I have a friend who actually preached for us here this, uh, at some point in time in the last couple of years. His name is Ryan Townsend. Ryan Townsend <clears throat> was an atheist. He was living the party life there in George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And his mom, who had become a Christian, said, Hey, Ryan, for the sake of intellectual integrity, study the claims of Jesus Christ for yourself. He, he had rejected it without having studied it. So his mom just said, look, study the claims of Christ for yourself. So let me encourage you to do the same thing for the sake of intellectual integrity. Have you looked at the claims of Jesus Christ for yourself? If you want to do this, friend, let me encourage you. We can uh, hook you up with, we can pair you up with another Christian to go through a Bible study, let's say, through the Gospel of Mark and to study the claims of Jesus Christ according to his own word. What did Jesus say about himself? And, uh, you know, know that we're not going to pressure you to, um, to convert. We cannot convert. Like, only God does that. But faithful, what are we called to do? We're supposed to faithfully hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth that is in his word. So if you want to explore, we're happy to do this. I love talking to skeptics. Um, I love looking at the evidence. So let me encourage you to do that. In light of what Paul writes here, he says, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. You can imagine Paul in some dank, wet prison below, penning these words. As he too faces his own impending death, he writes here, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And we know in chapter 4, if you look there over at chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 6, you can scan those verses, he, he, he knows that his death is coming. He's already being, quote, poured out like a drink offering. And all those terms of have finished the race are all in past tense. He knows that doom, at least in an earthly sense, is coming underneath Nero. But that's exactly why he says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. In terms of application, right, implication. How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ encourage Christians? <clears throat> well, First, it encourages Christians because in Christ we know that there is life after death. In Christ we know that there is life after death. After death, even in death, on the other side, there will be triumph. All on account of what Christ has done. He returns to this there in verse 7, or sorry, verse 11. Look over there, verse 11. Quoting this saying that seems to have been circulating around the, amongst the Christians at that time, he says there, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. He speaks about the Christian's union with Jesus Christ there in his death and resurrection. It's very similar. The language is very similar to Romans chapter 6. And there Paul describes <clears throat> that the Christian has died with Jesus to sin and death. In fact, the Christian has died to sin and death on account of Jesus' death to sin. Just as Jesus died to sin, right? He, he broke the power and tyranny of sin, so he does that for his people. And then look, we will live with him. It says, in Christ's resurrection to new life there. Romans chapter 6 speaks about how Christians have been raised to new life presently. So if you're a Christian, you already have this new life. But it also speaks of the future day. 
the future day when Christ returns and brings new bodily life once and for all. Even when we die, we will be raised to new life with Him at the appointed time. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Paul there writes, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's encouraging. Even in death, we know that there is hope. There is victory. Second thing, it's also encouraging because no matter how scary the prospect of death is, no matter how scary the prospect of death is, we always have a real, tangible hope. We always have a real, tangible hope. So turn over to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, it's, I don't know, in my Bible, it's what, 10, 20 pages to the left. Right? No matter how scary the prospect of death is, whether we are suffering for the faith or just suffering in general, there's always hope. Look there at 4.13 and 4.13, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Paul writes to the Thessalonians who were probably burying, who were in fact burying their loved ones, maybe on account of persecution, maybe just death in general. <clears throat> he says there, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers about those who are asleep, that is, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He's basically saying, look, people bury the dead. There, there are others who grieve as if they have no hope. He says, that's not us. That's not the Christian. Verse 14, for since, for because, for the reason that we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Those are facts. Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There is hope for those who are in the grave and hope for those who are facing the grave. No matter how scary, right, the potential of death will be and is, there is always hope in Christ who got up from the dead. The resurrection offers hope in the midst of discouragement and fear. Another reason to be encouraged here and to help us press on, embolden our zeal. Given eternal life with Christ is to come, we can spend this life, you can spend this life, Christian, preparing others for that one. And you can make that your whole entire life's goal. Given eternal life with Christ is to come, you, Christian, can spend this life preparing others for that one. To use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, we can spend and be spent for others. We can spend and be spent for others, even if that means persecution. We can say, yes, fine, let Caesar take my body or cancer and illness or whatever it is. Let them take my body because Christ will, in fact, raise it up again in victory. Why is that? Because Christ reigns over death. But here's the second reason, the second reason for why Christ reigns, or the second specific for how Christ reigns. We're still under point number one. It's because he reigns over Caesar as well. Not only does he reign over death, he reigns over Caesar as well. Paul says there, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Just as God had foretold through his people in the Old Testament that his chosen one, his deliverer, his savior, his messiah would come from the kingly line of David. So everybody was to be looking for that one. 
that one who reigned, that one who, according to the Old Testament, would establish justice and righteousness, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, not only over his people, but to the ends of the entire world. That's their Jesus. That's Paul's Jesus. He is jailed there by Nero's order, and he says, no. This king rules? No. I'll tell you about the king who rules. It is Jesus Christ, the offspring of David. Turn over to 1 Timothy, and you see, right? You see what Paul's thinking about there. Who is this Jesus? Caesar may take my body, but who is the true Lord? See there in verse 15. He's talking about that, start there where it says he, he's talking about who Jesus is, who the king is, right? He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, his holiness, his glory, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And there's Paul. Stuck in that prison, cold, two years, one year away from his death. Saying, basically, let Caesar take my life. Because Jesus Christ is king alone. The Bible is clear that in his first coming, Christ came to save. But in his second coming, he will judge. Which includes his judgment of every earthly authority there is. He will return and establish that righteousness, that justice to the ends of the earth. When did he do this? Well, I mean, we saw a little foretaste of this righteous judgment with Pharaoh in ancient Egypt, for example, and during the time of Moses and Israel, where God judged those who opposed his people. We can think of the Assyrians and Babylonians who exiled the Israelites and who enslaved God's people and who were against God himself. Friends, these are all... Right? This, this, this is all pointing to the, the, the last judgment when Christ returns and he will judge. We know this is going to take place. Just, we can just read Revelation. But why is this encouraging? Why should this encourage us in our zeal for Jesus Christ, even in the midst of suffering? And how should it encourage us in the midst of suffering? Well, first, it encourages us to trust him as judge. You think of Romans chapter 12, you can read that later. You think of 1 Peter, the entire book. And we know there that Christians, knowing that God will judge, what do they do in the present, even in suffering at the hands of their enemies, can entrust themselves to him who judges justly? Even in unjust suffering, which Paul knew. He lives out this model of what it looks like to entrust himself to God who judges justly. How else does this encourage us? How else does this encourage us? Well, it means in the meantime, even in suffering, we can live to please Him. We can live to please Him who is our Lord. He who enlisted us, as Paul spoke earlier in the book of 2 Timothy. We can be busy not about getting justice here on this earth, as if that's possible. And certainly, if we demanded justice immediately for everything we did... <laughs> we certainly would experience the judgment of God as well if it weren't for His grace and mercy. So we can be busy here in this life laboring, not for justice, but showing the love of Christ and the mercy of God even to our enemies. We can, in the language of 1 Peter, entrust ourselves to Him while doing good. 
Another thing, this encourages us to walk in the same footsteps of Jesus Christ. So we trust him as judge, right? That's one thing. We can seek to please him. We can also, therefore, walk in his same footsteps. As we are called to remember Jesus Christ, we are called to remember not only his person, but the path that he walked to the cross. His attitude of humility and meekness, strength under control, even to the point of death. Though he was indeed Lord and King, yet he submitted himself to death by sinners in order to save a people. You see here, Paul actually returns to this aspect, this future hope, knowing that God will judge. There in verse 12, right, the saying once again, he says there, if we endure, if we remain steadfast right here, right now, presently, we will also reign with him. Not in the sense where we trample on others in some sort of proud way, but we so delight in seeing Jesus' righteousness extended all the way to the ends of the earth and even reign with him, sharing in his glory, ruling over the new creation underneath his good and perfect righteousness, advancing it even. As Paul was subject to such suffering and humiliation, again jailed in this prison, yet with Christ before him in his vision, as his focus, his heart and his spirit were lifted to where Christ was. Lifted to the glory that Christ possesses as he who reigns. It's incredible here, the hope that Paul has here in the midst of suffering as he pens this letter. That same hope that he wants Timothy and all Christians to have if we are to face suffering ourselves. But not only did Paul have hope in this prison cell, he was also sold out for Christ in this prison cell. He was sold out for Christ in this prison cell. We see this as we move to the second truth about Christ that emboldens our zeal. Second main point here, Christ's word is unstoppable. Christ's word is unstoppable. This here is another reason why Paul was sold out for Jesus Christ. If you look there at 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, I'll go ahead and read that again. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, not the one he made up, but the one that was entrusted to him. That's what he means. The one that I'm delivering. The one that Jesus gave to me, the one that I am to give to you, the one that you are to give to others. Remember Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering. See how sold out he is, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. He's sold out for Jesus Christ. We see his suffering as the government was trying to stop him in his ministry. The ESV says that he was chained as a criminal. So physically, right, the government's trying to stop him, put him in jail, bound in chains, the ESV says. And then he, called, and then he says like he's bound as a criminal. This Greek word here translated in English as criminal is actually used for the men who were crucified to the right and left of Jesus. It's a word assigned to people who commit gross misdeeds and serious crimes. But of course, what exactly is Paul's gross misdeed? What is his crime? It is preaching the gospel that saves but despite their imprisoning him and binding him and cutting him down in reputation, did you notice there in the verse where his confidence is? His confidence is in the effective and powerful word of God. I am bound with chains as a criminal. But contrary to this, the word of God is not bound. The sentiment is they may bind me, 
They may have bound me, but they can never bind the word of God. And so, friend, we realize that the word of God is what is effective and powerful. And the word, no matter what happens to us, that word goes on. It is this word the Bible teaches us that gives life and regeneration according to the spirit. James chapter 1. It is the word that turns people's hearts to God, convicting them of their sin and giving them new spiritual life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We know in the book of Ezekiel and elsewhere in the Old Testament that it's God's word that comes to God's people, that gathers his people together. God's word is the one who called out Abraham and from Abraham made all of his people. We see in the book of Ezekiel where God brings Ezekiel to the valley of the dry bones in this vision where all these dead bones so dry, there's not even sinews, no muscle tissue, just dry dead bones. And there God tells Ezekiel to speak to the bones. The spirit comes alongside and gives life to the bones according to the word of God. No wonder Paul later on in this letter emphasizes Timothy's responsibility as a pastor to rightly handle the word of God, to preach the word of God in season and out of season. Is it true? Yes, there is suffering. Is it true that persecutors may martyr the messenger? Yes, it is. But they can never mute the message. Persecutors may martyr the messenger, but they can never mute the message. Paul was going to be martyred. I think he knew that. But he knew also at the same time that God had others. God had Timothy. God had Titus. God had others called and gifted of God who would go out heralding the word of God, seeing God's word work to save his people. God himself had determined that his word would save, which is why Paul banks on it. That's why he responds the way he does there in verse 10. Look there. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The salvation of God's people is not attached finally to the people or the messengers, because God will raise up more after we're long gone. But it is attached to the word, the power of the word. That's why he endures everything for the sake of the gospel, for the spread of the gospel. Now, there's something here that we do need to note. It's something interesting, right? We might think, well, if the word is powerful, why then does Paul need to endure at all? Why doesn't he just sit back and just relax? The word is going to go out and do what it does. Well, and then by extension, we can ask ourselves, why do Christians even need to evangelize if the word is sovereign, powerful, if the word gives life, and as Jesus said, the word sanctifies God's people? Well, friends, the short answer is because just as God appointed the ends, right? The end is the salvation of his people, the building of his church, right? God has appointed the ends. So, friends, he has appointed the means, that is, the evangelism. God appointed the ends, the salvation of his people. He also appointed the means, that is, the spreading of the gospel through evangelism. God has determined to save his church through his word. And the means by which he does that is by his people obeying his command to go out and spread his gospel. Evangelism. God's end and God's means are complementary. They're complementary. They go hand in hand because all of God. They work together. We see God's sovereignty and at the same time, human responsibility. What's interesting too is that Paul is guarded from thinking that everything 
God's plan really ultimately stands upon his shoulders. Right? At the same time here, we're kind of prevented from thinking that. Well, not really. Why is that? Because God is the one who has elected, chosen a people for himself. God is the one who has called Paul into his service and even given him the gifts so that he would fulfill his ministry here. So that's how, that's how I would answer that. Why do we need to evangelize at all? Well, just as God appointed the ends, so he appoints the means, that is evangelism. Knowing Christ's word is unstoppable emboldens Paul to endure all things for the sake of the elect. This brings us to the third truth that emboldens zeal. The third truth that emboldens zeal, Christ is indeed, he is indeed undoubtedly moving to save his people. He is indeed moving to save his people. This is why he endures. You look there at verse 10. What's the purpose for which he endures? He says there, he gives it to us. Therefore, because the word of God is not bound, it can't be stopped, it's unstoppable. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That... The reason is that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says that they too would have it. That they too would know it now and know it fully at his, his return. Here he speaks about salvation here, this eternal glory or splendor. It's another way of describing eternal salvation there. Knowing that God is moving to fulfill his plan of salvation, to establish his kingdom, and to gather together his people, friends, that helps us endure. God himself has elected a people from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1. And then now, in time, God is moving to bring those people out of the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1 says, and bring them into the kingdom of his beloved Son, all by his word and spirit. All account of his messengers being sent out with that word. And friends, you see there that Paul and Timothy, they get front rows to see God work in these marvelous ways. To see his unfolding plan of salvation hatched in eternity so that a people would be saved. And then not only do they have front row seats, but they're brought into the accomplishment of this plan all by his grace. So that they also, they also may obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus. This is why he suffers, for the purpose of Christ and for the benefit of God's elect. It's not just for himself, but he suffers that they also may obtain, or you could translate it as one person does, they as well as I. I suffer all things so that they, as well as I, may obtain. You see his zeal right there. It's for all those that God is bringing into the fold here. This helps us in our zeal. This helps us incur move forward in encouragement. But we, and we are encouraged in a unique way here. So, Christian, let me ask you. Typically, when you go through trials, what do you think about? When you go through trials, what do you think about? I think a lot of us think about it personally. We think about it personally. God uses trials to refine our faith, right? That's what it says in James chapter 1. That's what it says in 1 Peter 1. That is good and right, right? Trials are given so that our faith might be perfected and one day be perfected as we meet Jesus. It helps us endure and press on knowing that God is refining our faith as, as gold in a fire. That's all good. Also, when it comes to trials, how else do we think about it? We think, okay, we're out to go out and evangelize and maybe even suffer if we're called to. But we do that for the possibility, the possibility that people are going to be saved. 
Maybe they're going to be saved. We endure for the possibility, but here, there's a unique encouragement to press on, Christian. Paul doesn't only think about the personal, personal growth in faith, certainly he does that, nor does he mention suffering for the general possibility. He suffers for those God has guaranteed he will save. It's unique language, right? He could, he could have said anything right there. I endure all things for the sake of the church. I endure all things for the sake of God's people. But he says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. I suffer, not for the unsure possibility, the mere possibility, but for the sure guarantee. He suffers then, friends, for God's elect. And God has predestined before the foundation of the world that these people would know God as Father, Christ as Lord and Savior, the Spirit as a down payment, that they would know forgiveness of sins, right standing with God, adoption into His family. He suffers for them. They, as well as I, would know God, the Savior, so that all those called of God would receive exactly what Christ has set apart for them, their eternal inheritance. This should encourage us in our zeal. If we are ever called to suffer for the faith, know that we do not just suffer for personal sanctification, but we suffer for the joy of those God knows will be our brothers and sisters. And in our suffering, it's often good, right, to have eyes not on just ourselves, but on others that God is saving. Those God will, in fact, call to himself, is calling to himself right now. Not might, but will. Right? It, it, just going back to the introduction and in our suffering, right? we're so tempted to look at ourselves caught in this sort of downward spiral of negativity, if you want to say, stuck in sin and discouragement. Here, this casts our eyes on the eternal plan of God to save a people in Jesus Christ. It gets our eyes fixed on God's grace before all time, God's grace in time in Jesus, God's grace given to the church as we're called to share the gospel, and then God's grace as He is bringing us to Himself, as He preserves us all the way until the end. Is that what's on your mind as you suffer for the faith? Or is your suffering all about yourself? Perhaps for some, this should be a rebuke. Knowing Jesus and being in his church, maybe it is for you all about the I. And there's not much concern for the they also, to use Paul's language. If all you are ever concerned about is your own personal salvation, if all you ever suffer for is your own personal sanctification, and not the salvation and sanctification of others, as you risk sharing the gospel with them and suffering on account of that, let me encourage you to think about all that God has done and all those God has used to bring you to know Jesus Christ. And then think about all the suffering, maybe, that you caused them, that they endured for you. Consider, friends, God's grace for you. All by God's grace, if you are a Christian, a genuine Christian, born again, God has elected you, friend, from the beginning of the foundations of the world. This means that God planned you, that you, despite your sin and rebellion, would be adopted into his family. Again, have your sins forgiven, 
reconciled to God the Father through the blood of his Son, where you now know him as a good and perfect, loving Father. Not only that, though, God in his sovereign providence has set you where you live now, 20, 20th, 21st century, and then brought his own people, his people, his servants, his stewards around you so that they would talk to you about Jesus. So that they would go on and share the gospel to you and maybe even suffer because of you. Many of us didn't care, right? Think back to your own process here of how you came to faith. Many of you did not care. In fact, many of you spurned God's messengers, your mothers, your fathers, your brothers and your sisters, the friends that you grew up with. Many of you spurned those messengers, and worse, you spurned God's message of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And then one day, just one day, despite your own hostilities to the gospel, God's grace sovereignly operated on your heart causing you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as Peter says in 1 Peter. He has given you a new heart, taken out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, all by His grace according to the Word of God and His Spirit, so that you would receive all of the benefits of His grace in Jesus Christ into eternity. So that... He would shower upon you the riches of His grace and mercies into eternity. And He then brings you into this church. Imperfect church, certainly we struggle with sin. Imperfect, yes, but nevertheless saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. And now, friends, He calls you to share that gospel with others. And even now, by His grace, He continues to guard you until that end. Now, when you consider God's grace to you again in saving you, and then in using others to do so. We can't help but develop a bigger heart for others that they also, they as well as I, obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. As you go into your family gatherings, your friendship gatherings over this holiday season here, let me encourage you to be mindful of the grace of God given you. And so be moved to endure suffering for God's people and the sharing of the gospel. What are the truths about Christ that emboldens our zeal? Truth number one, Christ reigns. Truth number two, Christ's word is unstoppable. Truth number three, Christ is indeed saving his people. And then last, fourth, Christ will be faithful to build his church. Christ will be faithful to build his church. Here, again, Paul is wrapping up uh, what he has written up until this point. You look there at verse 11, concluding what he has said. The saying is trustworthy. Let me explain, he says. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless. Here's a little turn here. He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. This here is a faithful saying, Paul says, which again was probably in circulation amongst the Christians at the time, and, and what a useful one too. Of course, there's persecution under the emperor, under the Roman government, and there's this saying that's circulating. And it encourages us towards knowing the benefits of salvation, even in the midst of, even in the midst of suffering. 
We will, yes, live with Him on account of our union with Him. We will, in fact, reign with Him if we endure sufferings, what Paul's been talking about up until now. If we deny Him, that's a warning, He will also deny us. And if we are faithless, He remains faithful. If you look at the structure there, we want to understand this. If we look at this, uh, the structure here, the ESV has sort of arranged it so that we see the four if-then lines. If this happens, then this, the then is implied. If this, then this. The first two, as we have already addressed, encourage the Christian in their union with Jesus, right? Looking at Jesus, I'm united with him. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. It sets our hopes in the future. After Caesar has taken our bodies, yet we will live with him. If we endure, present tense, if we endure this suffering which Paul was going through, Timothy as well, Christians all over the world throughout the centuries, if we endure, what will happen in the future? Well, we reign with him as he is our king and we are his citizens. We looked at this earlier. Christ is the only rightful ruler and his people will rule with him and under him. But then the next two warn the Christian against apostasy. He says there, if we deny him, we will also deny us. This is a quote from Jesus who says in Matthew 10, 33, whoever denies me before men, think of the fear of man, think of being so scared of other people, those who can destroy the body. He says there, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's very appropriate. I mean, Timothy and Paul were seeing people go away from Jesus, turn their backs and so show themselves to never have been Christians in the first place. So here this saying helps Christians know what is, how, how do we understand what's going on? What do we make of those people and even ourselves if we abandon Jesus Christ and our apostates? Clearly this would work to encourage faithfulness to Jesus against denying Jesus Christ. And then the last line reads there, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, let me explain here. Some have read this to be an encouragement about Christ's faithfulness. You see Christ's faithfulness right there. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself, can't go against what, he, what his own will is and purposes and who he is. Some read this to be encouragement about Christ's faithfulness to those who waver in the faith. And that's the primary punch here. It's in contrast, right, to those who go on to deny Christ entirely. Here, this faithlessness is something other than, something less than outright denial. But you can imagine the thought, though, right, as it moves on for those who deny to those who waver. You can imagine the thought, well, I'm not an apostate, but what if we struggle? What if our faith wavers a little bit? Like, for example, Peter, Peter the Apostle. Well, then you see how the, the saying encourages them. If we are faithless, if we waver sometimes, if we give into the fear of men and are silent, like Peter, here, the saying could be encouraging them. We'll know that God remains faithful and he will, in fact, preserve his people, even you who are of weak faith and wavering faith, right? So in that case, it's meant to encourage those wavering in faith, knowing that despite ourselves, Christ remains faithful to us for he cannot deny himself. He remains true to himself. Now, of course, we know this to be true. This is absolutely true. Peter is a great example. Peter struggled. He struggled with the fear of man. He said he didn't know Jesus, the crucifixion. But yet after the resurrection, what happens? He repents. He, he continues believing Christ reinstates Peter into the ministry. Super encouraging. We know, of course, that, that, that this takes place. But I think a better way to understand this, a more straightforward way to understand these last two lines, is that it is an encouragement 
that Christ in his faithfulness will build his church. It's an encouragement that Christ in his faithfulness will build his church, even if people turn away, even if our friends walk away on account of ungodliness, even if they're giving in to their youthful passions, even if they teach false teachings, and it's sad to see our friends go. What do we make of the church? What do we think of it if Paul is going to die for the faith and many other Christians in Rome were being burned alive, fed to dogs? Well, can we have confidence at all? Well, I think the saying here comes alongside and says, yes, we can, in fact, be encouraged and persevere. Why is it? Even if some do turn away and are apostate, Christ in his faithfulness will, in fact, build the church. We know this to be the case. As Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Is there a need to be discouraged? To have a punch in the gut, so to speak, to be so discouraged and despairing as if God would not complete what he has started? Is there a need to give into some sort of permanent fear that God would somehow fail in seeing his great and grand plans through? Those plans that started from before the foundations of the earth. The plans that he had in Jesus as Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all who turn and believe. Would he somehow fail in the midst of Roman government persecution? No. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. God has his elect and he will bring them into the fold. Therefore, we can endure all things for the sake of the elect and the purposes of God. If you look there down to verse 19 of chapter 2, it says there, The Lord knows those who are His. Knowing that God will do what He promised as He is building His church, we can therefore, thinking about application implication, we can therefore be faithful in fulfilling our ministries seeking to please Him. This is exactly what Paul turns to for the rest of the entire letter. What does it look like to be faithful in fulfilling our ministries in the face of ungodliness, in the face of false teaching, and in the face of the call that God has given him? For Timothy and us all, as we mentioned previously, it means that we are to stand fast, faithfully holding out the gospel of Jesus Christ, even to those who may persecute us. And we do so in love. It means also... Even if others turn away to godlessness, we can be faithful living in holiness, in godliness. That's what he talks about in 2.19. We can be faithful in fleeing sin. That's what he talks about in 2.22. And all for the sake of Jesus Christ. And for the pastors and teachers specifically, we are to be faithful in preaching the word of God, knowing that it will accomplish everything that God determined it would, according to Isaiah. We can do this, trusting God is faithful, and He will indeed complete the work that He started in us as individuals and in His church at large. As He has His people out there, He still has a remnant. So friends, if we are ever tempted to some sort of permanent despair in suffering for the faith or suffering in general, we are called here by this passage to look outward, to look to Christ, His person, his plan to build his church, and the fact that he intends to use you, Christian, to do that. 
what will help us press on in zeal for Jesus Christ, even in suffering for the faith? The answer is simply Jesus Christ, remembering, first, Christ reigns. Second, Christ's word is unstoppable. Third, Christ is indeed saving his people. And fourth, Christ is faithful to build his church. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge that you are our all-powerful God, and in you can we have confidence. Lord, we pray that our faith would be anchored in who you are and what you have planned to do, what you have already accomplished, accomplished and what you will accomplish in Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that our perseverance wouldn't finally be attached to our own fleeting emotions or our situations, but our perseverance along with faith would be attached to who you are. We thank you, God, that you do not change like shifting shadows, and so we can bank on you for everything. Make us strong, we pray. Help us know, Lord, that you have given us all a spirit of power in the spirit, of love, that we might love others, and of self-control, that we might persevere in godliness and diligence, fulfilling our ministry. Root our hearts more and more in you. And where we suffer, Lord, we pray that we might look to Christ who walked the path of meekness all the way until death, knowing that on the third day he would rise again to be seated at the right hand of the Father, the inheritor of all things, where all things would be placed under his feet. God, we ask that you would help us remember the union we have in Jesus Christ, that though we may die, we will be raised in Christ, that though we may suffer, yet we are called to endure, and in Christ we too will reign one day. In your name we pray, amen.